Hey, good morning. How y'all doing? Good. I'm, uh, my name's Ed Griffinhagen. I'm our missions and outreach pastor here at my church, and uh, we're in, in week three of this series, but Jeff and Christy and their family are, are getting some R&R in Colorado again this week, and so when the cat's away, you know what happens. So anyway, I'm, like I said, I'm the missions and outreach pastor here, and we were out one night, and I, a friend of mine that I'd become friends with uh, lives down on 3rd Avenue in some woods, 3rd Avenue and about 20th Street. He said to me, he was an atheist, and he said, why has God made it so hard to find him? Why has God made it so hard to believe that, that he exists? And he said, if I had all that power and I, had all, and I was all-knowing and all-powerful, that I'd figure out a way to make it pretty obvious that I'm here. He said, if, if he's for real... Why has he made it so dang hard to see his presence, see his plans? And so I hope today when we're done uh, that we'll at least begin to have an answer uh, for my friend. Even in the midst of struggles and pain and disappointment that we'll begin to have an answer that we can at least consider the idea that God uses the events of our lives to shape us. We just got to recognize that, they're, that, that it's taken place. Now, if an, if an ordinary weaver can take a bunch of threads, a bunch of different colored threads, and create a beautiful tapestry, isn't it just possible, at least possible, that the grand weaver, that God the grand weaver, has plans and a design in mind for me and you, a design that will adorn, that really will adorn you as he uses those events, those threads, those events in your life, to fashion you for his purposes because he's got at his disposal every thread that is out there. And so, like I said, we're in week three of the summer road trip, summer vacation series, and most of us look forward to, to a road trip, maybe a, some vacation or, or some spur-of-the-moment fishing trip or hunting trip or shopping trip or golf trip or I don't know, whatever it may be. But what happens when we find ourselves in a place on a trip that we never wanted to be or maybe even never in a gajillion years ever even considered or expected to be. What do we do? How do we respond to that? And I want to talk through a passage this morning in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is one of the Old Testament prophets on the left side of your Bible, between sandwiched in between Isaiah and the book of Lamentations, a little more than halfway through the Old Testament, and Jeremiah preached for about 40 years, starting in 627-ish B.C. Um, the nation of Israel had turned their back on the Lord, and they were worshiping idols, and they were listening to false prophets, and those false prophets led them to worship idols, and Jeremiah condemns them for the sin of idolatry and for their rebellion uh, against him, him being God. So we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 29 this morning, but here's the deal. I want to do something else because about a couple of weeks ago when I was getting ready for this message, <clears throat> I just thought it, how hugely important it is for you and I when we pick up a Bible to read it, when we read a book in the Bible or a passage or a verse or a chapter or whatever, that we read it and that we study it and that we interpret it the right way, that the method we use to read the way that we read it is that we're doing that in the right way and so I want to give us a five or six or seven minute cram course on on how 
to do that. This is a little bit of an aside from the message, but then we're going to do what we learned today. We're going to do that with uh, this passage and a couple of passages in the book of Jeremiah. And so you'll see on the screen behind me sort of a graphic. Um, And and this is going to be, really it's going to be our method of, of doing this. And so the first thing that you gotta, that you got to know is you got any book in the Bible, any passage, any verse, there's really three audiences. The first audience is, is going to be the ancient audience, the audience from when the passage was written. And it really includes the, the human, the original human author, whoever wrote that book, um, and, and the people that he wrote the book to. And then number two, you have got a, a timeless audience, an audience that transcends all of history, transcends anywhere on the planet, you have that audience. And then third, you've got a contemporary audience, in in our case, that's me and you today in 2017. And so here's what the goal is. Anytime you pick up your Bible to read, the goal, bigger picture, you want to find out what the Bible meant, you want to find out what it means, and you want to find out how do we apply that to our lives today, but you got to do that in the right order. You can't just grab a passage and apply it to your life because you're very liable to be taking it wildly out of the context, and you and I know people that do that all the time. Um, They take stuff crazy out of the context, and so there's a method to the madness of of figuring this out, and so the reality is that that if we we do it right, we got to start. We got to start down here in step one and we got to figure out what did that Bible, what was that author's intent, and what did the people that were there, what did it mean to them, whoever it was written to? And there's really four considerations. The first being, um, context-wise, there's four considerations. The first would be a historical consideration. What was going on in the world? What, what, what are, the, what are the, the events of the people's lives that are the hearers of the word what was happening in the world? And, and I guess as a little bit of an aside, if you don't have a good study Bible, you need to get a good study Bible because at the beginning of every book in most good study Bibles, you're, somebody will have written the date the book was written, the author, what was going on in the world, um, who the audience was. It's going to give you, and it really, really makes a difference when you read the book if you know all of that. And so you got the historical context that a, passage or a book was written into, but then you also have, woo, can you read that? That's the grammatical context, because here, contrary to our belief, this book was not written in English. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, the New Testament was written in Greek, and every word doesn't translate perfectly. In fact, many, many words don't translate perfectly, and so if the world were perfect, when you run into a word that you really want to dig into, you do a word study and you figure that out. And we're going to do a little bit, a little bit of that today. And so you've got uh, uh, the historical context, you've got the grammatical context, but then you also have the context of that passage and where it is in the scripture. And you can't just, here's what many people do. They decide what they want to do. They decide what they want something to mean, or they may decide that they want to act in a certain way and they're going to go pick some little obscure passage out of the Scripture, one little verse, and they're going to lay their life on it. But you can't do that. You need to look, you need to read a verse in the context of the sentence, and a sentence in the context of the passage, and a passage in the context of the book. Look at what's before it, and look at what's after it, 
before you just take one little verse or one little word. And so you've got the historical, the grammatical, and you've got that context of, uh, of where the passage is. But then you also have what kind of book my writing is like so bad. Anybody know what that word is? Genre. There's, I know it doesn't look like it, but there's poetry books in the Scripture. There's wisdom literature in the Bible. There's historical na- narratives, lots of historical narratives. There's prophecy, and there's apocalyptic literature like, uh, you know, like the book of the Revelation. And you cannot read a book of poetry the same way that you would read a book of history. You, you just can't do it. It doesn't, it doesn't work, and it's not right, and it's not fair to the text. So you need to know what you're reading and, and, and what genre that particular book is. So um, that is sort of our step one, to put everything into the context that it's in. But then we've got to go from step one to step... And in step one, you're going to see some principles and some rules, not rules, some principles and some truths when you're in step one. But you've got to move into step two to find out if those truths, if those principles transcend time. Are they timeless? And the way that, and this really is where we go from what was being said to what's always being said, from what was taught to what is always being taught, from what the original author was saying, human author, was saying to the original audience to what God, the author, is saying to all people at all times. And that takes place up here. Well, how do we do that? One of the ways that we do that is we've got to compare Scripture with Scripture. If you take a, some principle in, in, in the Bible, go look and see what the whole Bible says about that particular principle. I'll give you a great example. The animal sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Whole book, the book of Leviticus, it's all throughout it. What do we do for this sin or that sin? We're going to kill a goat or whatever. And you're going to ask yourself, well, that's in that Bible. So why aren't we every Sunday out there in the parking lot, you know, stringing up a goat and slitting its throat? Well, the reason why, and it says it in the Bible. It, it's, it says that we need to be doing that. But in other places, in other places in the Scripture, because we're comparing Scripture with Scripture, is there other places that either affirms that principle or rescinds that principle? And in this case, in the sacrificial system, the entirety of the New Testament rescinds that because the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross fulfilled all of the entire sacrificial system and did away with it. Now, flip the coin over, and are there other things where all of the entirety of the Scripture uh, affirms something? Take, take adultery. Well, it's one of the big ten. What is the rest of the Scripture? So it's one of the Ten Commandments. What does the rest of Scripture say about adultery? Does it rescind the prohibition on adultery? Does it rescind the idea that adultery is a sin? No, the rest of all of the entirety of Scripture about that topic says it is still a sin. And so you have both, and you have to, you've got to read and study and look at what all of the Scripture says about something. So we go down here in step one. What did it mean then? Up here into step two, what is the timeless truth? And we're going to try to pull timeless truths today out of the Scripture. And, and, and in that sense, you don't want to force something into the book. You've got to let the book speak, and you've got, you got to extract the principle out of it. You can't. It's not about you. 
It's not about me. It's about the, it's about the word. And so then we go from uh, step one to step two. Then how does it all apply to you and I? Having gone through those first two steps, we now have what we need to bring it into 2017 because that's when we live and, and, and apply that timeless truth. We're going to apply that to today. Don't go from here to here because you're very liable to be misinterpreting something, often misinterpreting something. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. So let's jump back to the book of Jeremiah. And I want to set the stage a bit historically. I want to get us some context around where we're going to be today. And around 600 B.C., 600-ish B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of Babylon, Babylon is basically where Iraq is today. God used Nebuchadnezzar as his agent of judgment against the nation of Israel for their rebellion, for their sin, more than anything, for their sin of idolatry. And God used Nebuchadnezzar to lay the wood down on, on Israel. In fact, there was, a, and, 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 well, in fact, there was a few different times in that 20-ish year period from 607 to about uh, 586 B.C., a few different times where, uh, where they were exiled, where they were taken, where the, the Jews were taken captive. And then finally in 586 B.C., Jerusalem was laying in ruins. Um, the temple was destroyed. Tons of people were killed. And then thousands of Jews were taken captive into Babylon. And Jerusalem was left in ruins. Jeremiah 29 is set against that backdrop. So you've got to put yourself in the shoes of them. And that's the backdrop of Jeremiah chapter 29. It's against the backdrop of an 800 mile, because it was about 800 miles from Jerusalem, uh, ultimately like Jerusalem to Baghdad. But it was about 800 mile forced walking road trip that those captives were taken on. Probably took months and months to make that 800 mile walk. So these folks who were taken captive, their whole lives revolved around that holy city. Their whole lives revolved around temple worship. The temple in Jerusalem was, the, was God's dwelling place, would be the way that they would look at it. And so how in the world are they 800 miles away, might as well be on another planet, how are they going to worship the Lord if they're 800 miles away from the temple? And I know that's foreign for, for us, but this was written 2,700 years ago to people that that was not foreign to. That was the world that they lived in. And so they're there. They're in Babylon. They're taken captive. They're constantly trying to figure out a way how to get out. They're tr- constantly trying to figure out a way to rebel and to escape. And they had these guys telling them that they're only going to be there for a short time. They're all, you're only going to be here a short time. Y'all chill. Um, the Scripture calls those guys false, false prophets. And Jeremiah warns the people against being deceived by these false prophets. So you turn with me to Jeremiah 29, the beginning of it, and this chapter is introduced to us as the text of a letter from Jeremiah to the first exiles because, you see, they hadn't all been taken exile yet. And so this, this, in verse 1, uh, it reads, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
So it wasn't Jeremiah speaking to those people. It was Jeremiah penned a letter because Jeremiah hadn't been taken exile yet. He hadn't been taken captive yet. So he writes a letter. He gives, puts it in the hands of some messengers. They go to Babylon, probably took months to get there, and they're reading this letter to those folks that was the first set of captives. And Jeremiah, had the, he, he, he had the true heart of a shepherd. And, this le- and through this letter, God spoke through him to encourage them. He's trying to tell them how they ought to be living in Babylon. He tells them, you're not going to be here for a short amount of time. You're going to be here 70 years. He's very specific at the beginning of Jeremiah 29. You're going to be here 70 years. You're not going to be here six months. You're going to be here 70 years. You better get used to it. Get married, have children, have grandchildren, plant crops. Figure out a way to have a life as normal as you you possibly can. Live a normal life and don't listen to the false prophets. And here's why. You fast forward to verse 11, and verse 11 is the here's why I'm telling you, I'm God, why I'm telling you to try to live as normal as possible. So verse 11 says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And so you'll see that passage here, and let me get it up. So I want to pick this verse apart. I want, to, I want to do what we talked about doing a minute ago to this passage. And even before I even get started on that, the, the very first thing I want to tell you is, is that ain't got nothing to do with money. Nothing. has absolutely nothing to do with money. It has nothing. And anybody, any, any, any TV preacher that tells you that it's God's that this passage is speaking to the, to the idea that God's desire is for you to get rich. That is not what that passage says. It, absolutely not. And so I'm, I'm going to show you all that in a second. I want to show you what that word actually means, but I felt like I needed to say that. So, <clears throat> first and foremost, that word no, the Hebrew is yadati, and that word is an intimate knowledge, for I know. It's God, for God knows. God has an intimate knowledge. It even is spoken of the word experience, and it's experience in the sense that God has already experienced the outcome of his plans. Why? Because God is not bound by time. He knows because he's already seen all of it from the beginning to the end, and so it is it is an intimate knowledge for someone who has already ex- experienced the outcome of the plans that he has for them because he can see it all at the same time. They haven't, but God has. They weren't capable of that kind of intimate knowledge, and neither are me and you. And so he knows the plans. And this word, this word plans is etamasabaot in Hebrew, and, and it's usually translated plans literally it means thoughts or intents. Wow, that's terrible. Thoughts or intents, and it's, the, it's a plan in the, in the sense of a series of well-designed, well-crafted, well-devised steps to be carried out, and it is almost always used of desire. And whose desire is it talking about? 
it is the subject of the sentence, the I, which is God. It's almost always spoken of as the desire of the person that is spoken about, the subject of the sentence. And he doesn't just say it. He declares it. He nooms it in Hebrew. And, and that word carries crazy authority. It's very explicit. It's very emphatic. It is almost like if you could put a big fat exclamation mark there that says, you need to be listening to me because I'm saying this and I'm a promise keeper and I'm telling you the truth. And so what are the thoughts, what are the plans that the Lord knows? Um, the NIV translates that word prosper and that's probably the pat, that's probably the word that you've read most of all when you read this, but the Hebrew that is behind that word is shalom. Have y'all ever heard the word shalom? Shalom is almost always translated peace and not prosper. And so what, it, what, what his plans for them really are, that word carries the weight of completeness, soundness, security, peace, contentment, um, um, a sense of well-being, a state of favorable affairs. That's why I said a minute ago it has nothing to do with money and it has everything in the world to do with peace and contentment. So he had plans <clears throat> for them to have peace. He didn't have plans for, in the NIV it translates it, harm, and that word is lara'ah, and it, and it, and it, it, it means uh, evil or calamity or disaster. It even sometimes has the sense of brokenness or, uh, or even being devoured. And so his plans are not for these people to be devoured. His plans are not for them to have calamity or disaster. His plans are for them to have peace and contentment. And why, you know, why does he do that? Um, and, it, and his promise that he is making, and this is a promise because it's a plan, is to, to give. And that word give is letet in Hebrew. And it is, it is to cause them to have or it is to present them with. His plan is to give them two things. And number one is a harit, which is a future. And it is the final result in the sense of something that is yet to come. And that's number one. And number two is to give them vatikva, hope, is, is tikva. And, and it is an expectation or an optimistic outlook. It's a general feeling that some desire is going to be fulfilled. Desire is all over this passage. And whose desire is it? It is the I in the passage's desire. It's God's desire. So I want you to get in the mind of a Jew 2,700 years ago, stripped of everything, taken captive, walked 800 miles virtually to another planet, hearing God's words as spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, here's the sound that those people heard when the messenger read 29.11 to them. They heard, Ki anoki adati et hamashabaot, asher anoki hashev alechem neum adonai mahashavot shalom velo l'ra'ah latet lachem aharit v'tikva. It's what their ears heard. It went from the mouth of that messenger into their, into their ears. But here's what their heart and their soul and their mind heard when they heard those Hebrew words. And this was God saying to them, guys, 
I know that it's brutal. I do. I know. But I also know the thoughts and the plans and the intents that I have for you, the desires that I have for you. Trust me, I'm weaving a story. Just trust me. They're plans to bring you completeness and peace and security. You just got to trust me because I'm weaving. They're not plans to allow you to be devoured. They're not plans uh, for, to bring disaster onto your life. Trust me, I've got your back, and you just got to trust me. I love you more than you could ever know. And my greatest desire right now is to give you the free gift of peace and, content- and contentment and a future that is filled with hope. That's what that passage meant to those people that heard that 2,700 years ago. Now, step one of our little process. Now, is it fair to say that what God told them through the prophet Jeremiah is what he's saying to all people of all times and all places? Is it fair that, to say that that's the theological statement, that that's the timeless truth that is being taught in this passage? My gut tells me it probably is, but we've got to walk through the process and see what does the rest of Scripture say about that because it's possible that somewhere else that's rescinded and the entirety of Scripture says that's not what God wants. So we've got to look at what the rest of Scripture says. And I, and I did, and, and I'm gonna, I've got four or five verses, and there's, in fact, there's over 190 times in your Bible that the word hope is used. And so I want to give you a couple of more passages where either the word hope is used or hope is spoken of. Lamentations chapter 3, starting in verse 21, says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. If it says never ceases, it doesn't mean it ceases every other Friday. It means it never ceases. So the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end, which means his mercies never come to an end. Don't let, don't let Satan deceive you into thinking that his mercies do come to an end. Don't, because that little devil on that shoulder is going to tell you that. And so this passage says, his love never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. And then Romans 8.28 says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where's the living hope come from? Where's the new birth come from? I wish I could draw on this. It comes from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a relationship between those two things. So from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can what? Can it perish? Is it behind me? Can it perish or can it never perish? Say never. It can never perish. Spoil or fade. And then in Romans chapter 15, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him. What does that say? That says, as you trust him, he will fill you with joy and peace. It doesn't say that he will fill you with joy and peace if you don't trust him. Those two things go together. So may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that, why is he doing that? So that you may overflow with hope. By your own power? No, by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're overflowing with hope when... My voice cracked. You're overflowing with hope, but it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so here's the timeless truth. And the Bible clearly, crystal clear, paints a picture of a God who says, I'm for you. I'm not against you. 
I'm for you. I love you. I, want, I only want the best for you. I don't want calamity for you. And so in your message notes, you got this timeless principle, and here's what it is. God's desire is to give all people in all places at all times peace and contentment and hope in a future. That is his desire, and that's the principle that we pull out of, out of that passage. And so we figured out what was being said in this verse to those captives in Babylon, and then we figured out what God, the author, is saying to all people at all times in this verse. Okay, so now we got this head knowledge. We understand this, this principle, but what difference does that make? What difference does that make to you and I in 2017 in the United States? And so I want to tell you a story and I want you to try to notice in the story the weaving of little God moments throughout it, the moments when God acts or leads or directs or orchestrates some event woven through, woven through every one of those moments is that principle that was up on the screen a second ago. And so Susan and I have been walking through a battle that began back in January with a trip to the doctor, and I don't even know, honestly, I don't remember what I even went to the doctor for. And, and my, my uh, family practice doctor is a friend of mine from high school. We've known him, I've known him for years and years. And while I was there, he said, you know, dude, you had not done blood work in five years, and you will be here. He said it just like that. You will be here Monday morning to get blood work done. And I said, yeah, whatever, whatever, I'll be there. So I did, got the blood work drawn, and about a week later, he called me back, and he said, you need to make an appointment with your urologist because your PSA level, which is your prostate serum antigen level, was 10.66, and it should be about 2 or 3, definitely no more than 4. You need to go see your urologist. So I called, uh, called, made an appointment with Todd Gerald, who's my urologist, to get a physical exam of the prostate, which is not the most pleasant thing in the world to get. But I make an appointment to get a physical exam, and he tells me, regardless of what, the physical exam shows we're going to do a biopsy. So we did the physical exam, absolutely 100,000% normal. It was not enlarged. It wasn't swollen. It wasn't irregular. There was not any, they call it smooth. It was smooth and silky, and, um, and his finding that it was smooth and silky was not real pleasant for me. But, but it, was, it was normal, no nodules, no nothing. So I'm thinking, very cool. Things are looking pretty good. But he had told me that either way, whatever that, Physical exam showed he's going to do a, a biopsy. So the next Thursday or Friday, uh, it was on February 24th, he did a biopsy. Well, I just thought the physical exam was unpleasant. Well, the biopsy's 12 needle core samples of the prostate. Your prostate's about that big. It's about the size of a walnut. 12 needle core samples of the prostate, and then about 10 days later, I call him up, or he calls me to, to give me the results of the biopsy, and here's the words that came out of his mouth. He said three of the 12 samples indicated prostate cancer. So Susan and I are fixing to start a road trip that I really, really would have preferred not to be on. And 15 and a half years ago, if the words, you have cancer, had come out of a doctor's mouth, I would have found the nearest bridge and taken a leaping dive off of it. But 15 and a half years ago, I was lost. Fifteen and a half years ago, hope didn't live inside of me. Fifteen and a half years ago, peace didn't live inside of me. Fifteen and a half years ago, contentment didn't live inside of me because the Holy Spirit fifteen and a half years ago also didn't live inside of me. And today he does, and it, he absolutely changes everything. 
and everything includes a cancer diagnosis. Fifteen and a half years ago, there was no hope. So three months ago, when I heard those words, and I can't even explain this, but 15, uh, excuse me, three months ago or so, when I heard those words, it's like immediately I felt peace. I'm talking about from one sec, the words came out of his mouth and I had peace. And it was like he was almost whispering in my ear, I got this, just trust me, I'm weaving a story, just, just trust me, I got it. And three passages, I don't even understand how it works, but three, how he works, but three passages just popped in my head. It was like my eyes were closed and I could see the page of the Bible of these three different passages. The first one being Jeremiah 29, 11 that we read a minute ago, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to, to give you hope in a future. That was the first one. The second one was Philippians 4, 6, and 7, which says, do not be anxious about anything. Does that say be anxious about a few things? No, it says do not be anxious about anything. So do not be anxious about anything. This is why I'm saying you got to let the Bible say what it says. Don't be cramming stuff in there that's not there. So do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, does that say in some situations? No, it says in every situation. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, God's peace, which transcends all understanding, means you ain't going to be able to understand it, but the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say present all your petitions through prayer and thanksgiving. Present all your petitions to me, God. Present them all to me, and I'm going to answer them exactly the way you want me to answer them. That's absolutely not what that passage says. It says give it all to me, and regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what happens, I will give you peace. And you will not understand how I do that, but I will give you peace. And I knew right off the bat, The second he said those words, I knew right off the bat that God had plans for me and they were for me not to be anxious, that they were for me to have peace and contentment, and that the very thoughts of God were to give me hope towards the future. He didn't have plans for me to be anxious. He wanted me and Susan bathing all this in prayer, leaning into him, not leaning into other stuff. And there's lots of other stuff I could have leaned into. But he says, lean into me and my peace will guard your hearts and my peace will guard your minds. And so here's the principle for this. God's peace will guard the hearts and minds of believers. God's peace will guard the hearts and minds of believers. And that verse, we just read it and, it, and it says you can't understand it. So you need to, and I remember thinking, I need to figure out how he does this. And then I thought, well, who am I to say that? I'm just going to accept that the scripture says what it says. And I don't understand how he does it, but he does it nonetheless. The third passage that just leapt in my brain was Daniel chapter 3, and this is a long kind of passage, but I paraphrased it a little bit. And it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they say, if and, and, and Daniel says this, and he's talking about them. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. He's able to do it, and he's going to do it, but even if he doesn't, Y'all park on those words. Remember that. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not bow down to your gods. We will not worship the image of gold that you laid in front of us. 
So these men wearing their robes, trousers, all their clothes were thrown into the blazing furnace. And then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped to his feet and he asked his guys, wasn't there three men in there that we tied up and threw into that fire? And his guys said, yeah, there were, your majesty. And he says, look, I see four men walking around that fire unbound and unharmed. And the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, not a hair on their head singed. Their clothes weren't, weren't, weren't torched. They didn't smell like fire. And I know that there's a fourth guy in the fire with us. And I know it just as sure as I'm standing right here today that the God that I serve and that you serve is able, was able to deliver me from that cancer. But even if he didn't, yes, he is able to, but even if he didn't, that I was going to be okay because I knew exactly where I'd be. Either way, he has been alongside Susan and I every single step of the way. And so the principle, here's the principle. Jesus is always alongside believers in the heat of the fire. Always. Circumstances aside, outcomes aside, he is always alongside believers in the heat of the fire. Now, all three of those passages written at different times, different places to different people for different reasons, all three of them contain very similar timeless truths uh, that, that, we have, that we've spoken about. And they're just as applicable in America, in Columbus, Georgia, in 2017 as they were to Christians in the third century that were being persecuted. They are completely, those principles, completely timeless. So now we go back to, uh, to my doctor, and he says, I need to have a CAT scan. Got to see if the cancer spread. So we called to get an appointment. We called to get an appointment, and they were booked three weeks out. Man, I don't want to wait three weeks. This thing, cancer grows. If y'all didn't know that, cancer grows. Fast or slow, every day that goes by, cancer is growing. And so I called to get an appointment. They're three weeks booked out, and it's going to take a week to get, um, to get the results. And so uh, 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, and I made the appointment. But 10 or 15 minutes after that, I'm in my office, and a friend of mine that works in my office, Garrett Gross, he says, it was either Garrett or Paul, he said the, our marketing director uh, that, that works for them, her husband is a radiologist down there. And I said, well, okay, see what you can do. 10 o'clock that night, that same night, I made an appointment for three weeks out. 10 o'clock that night, Dr. Lewis calls me on the phone and says, can you be here at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning and we'll go ahead and do the CAT scan and we'll give you the results right then. You don't have to wait three weeks for an appointment. You don't have to wait, wait a week for the, uh, for the results. And so he does the scan and the initial results uh, were that there was no detectable cancer in my liver, in my, in my kidneys, in my lungs. There could be microscopic leakage that uh, just wasn't detected yet. So now what do we do? Now what do we do? So we go and we talk to my doctor, Todd Gerald, my urologist, and he says to me, based on your numbers and based on your young age, which was way cool to hear because in the sense of prostate cancer, I am young, um, but he says, based on your numbers, um, you got options, probably four or five different options, but those options really are going to probably boil down to having some sort of radiation or to have surgery to remove the prostate. And he told us if we, did the, if we wanted to do the radiation thing, we needed to go to this place in Atlanta, RCOG, because they have the highest cure rate in the United States for prostate cancer. And if we're going to do surgery, we need to go see Scott Tully at St. Vincent's Hospital in Birmingham, Alabama, because he's done a ton of these surgeries and he's good. And I said, Todd, you're a surgeon. Well, I can't, you just do the surgery right here if, if that's the route that we want to take. And he said, yeah, I do do the surgery, but he's better than I am. 
He's done a way more of these than I have. Well, that's a selfless, pretty selfless thing to, for a surgeon to say, and I couldn't really imagine that he said that. He said, y'all go home and y'all do some research, dig in for a few days, and then we'll talk. So we did, and we talked to multiple people, people we know, people we don't know, that have had prostate cancer, guys, and every one of them, virtually every one of them, from some I knew, some I don't or didn't, different parts of the country, they all landed at RCOG in Atlanta. Christie's brother landed at RCOG in Atlanta. Don Wilhite, who was the pastor at Calvary Baptist Church for 45 years, landed at RCOG in Atlanta. And one of my friends, uh, also uh, older than I am, but he, he talked about how great they were and about um, that Dr. Merlin was an incredible doctor and so forth. And, and this place in Atlanta, uh, RCOG, they have, ri- they have radiated 27,000 prostate cancers in the last 25 years. And so everything was pointing us towards that place. Anyway, so this friend of mine that said this Dr. Merlin was such a great doctor, we were over at their house, and I said, I said, Dr. Merlin, I told his wife, I said, pull him up on the computer and let me see if you can find him, what he looks like. And he shows me his picture, and I said, that ain't Dr. Merlin, that's magic. I went to, I went to he was a fraternity brother of mine at, at Georgia. You call him Dr. Mark Merlin, but his name was magic. And so we go up there, and, I, and all these things, these little... No, these little, he's God's moving the chess pieces around or something. But everything is pointing us toward this place in Atlanta. And I hadn't seen magic in 30-plus years. But God's opening a door, and I told Susan, I'm getting all these confirmations that this is where we need to be. We need to be doing radiation up here. So we meet with, with magic for two hours. He sat there talking to us, telling us the pros and the cons and all the blah, blah, blahs about, about doing the radiation every day for seven weeks which is a lot of radiation, 35 treatments. Um, But when he plugs my numbers in their database, the largest database of prostate cancer patients in the world, he says, you got an 81.8% chance of being around 15 years from now. I'm thinking, I don't know, I'm thinking that's pretty good odds. But here's what he said when we were done talking. He said, have you spoken to a surgeon yet? And I said, no, I hadn't. Magic, we've kind of decided to do your radiation protocol here. And he says, you need to talk to a surgeon. And I said, well, I'm, we're pretty decided that we're going to do this. He said, I don't care what you're saying. You need to talk to a surgeon. I said, Mark, magic. W- we've decided. He said, you need to not have any regrets. You need to talk to a surgeon and then weigh the options. And if you choose surgery, then you choose surgery and not radiation. And he said, I'm a grown-up. I can handle it. But him pushing me into, or us into talking to a surgeon was was pushing away $54,000 because that's what that radiation treatment cost. Another selfless doctor. So I was still in my mind doing radiation. Susan and I leave uh, on the way home from Duluth, which is where his office was. And I said, we're going to go talk to a surgeon? But I done decided that we're doing radiation. And so about a week later, about a 1,000 prayers later, we go to Birmingham to meet with Dr. Tully, who had actually done the first of these surgeries in Alabama, and he's done 4,000 of them since 4,000 of these surgeries since then. And his numbers with the surgery were that 85 or 90% chance that I'd be around about 30 years from now, which the odds were better. But in my little simple mind, the potential side effects were worse. Even though the side effects, the potential for the side effects was kind of low, but the side effects I thought were worse. And I said, well, I need to talk. We need to talk to my doctor in Columbus and get his opinion. So I picked the phone up the very next day. I called Dr. Gerald. Guess what happened? He answered the phone when I called him. 
And he said, I, or I said, one question, what would you do if I was your brother, what would you tell me to do? He said, I'll do you one better. If I were you, I'd be in Birmingham having Dr. Tully operate on me. Decision was made. That's what we were going to do. So four weeks ago, I had a laparoscopic, robotic, radical prostatectomy, which means it's done robotically. Six incisions, but it's done robotically, which means the doc is sitting over to the side on an Xbox operating these little robotic arms inside of my belly. It's insane, but he's done it 4,000 times. And the initial results were that the margins were clear. It didn't look like there was any cancer that had spread, but you don't know for sure until they take the prostate out, they send it off to pathology, they chop it up and dissect it, and then they can really tell you what the real true results were. And so two and a half weeks ago, we went go back to Birmingham to have the post-op, sit down and talk to him about the final pathology and so forth. Um, and here's what the results were. He's, there was more cancer, way more cancer in the prostate than the biopsy showed. In fact, 40% of the prostate had cancer in it, but it had absolutely had not spread anywhere. And he said there's a 95-plus percent chance you will never, ever deal with this again. He said, you may walk out of the office today and get run over by a bus, but if you're here 50 years from now, prostate cancer is not going to be the thing that kills you. Praise the Lord for that. And so, here's another little tidbit. Susan and I don't have health insurance because our health insurance went up to $1,783 a month. At the end of December, December 31st, we didn't have health insurance anymore. January 1st, we got Samaritan Ministries health sharing on January 1st, about two weeks before that initial blood work. And so here's what I want you to see. I want you all to see God's plan, God's weaving together of these events in our lives for peace and for hope and for a future and how those unfolded in a succession of his moments along this trip. Number one, it's just not normal protocol-wise to do a biopsy on a prostate that is 100% normal, that looks and feels 100% normal, but my doctor did. It has never been normal in our, Susan and I's 29 years of marriage, it has never been normal for her not to worry about stuff. Total rock during this. In fact, about two weeks after he told me I had cancer, I finally said to her, how, how do you feel about this? And she said, God's got it. She said, total, absolute peace because I know that God's got it. Absolutely against the way that in my mind Susan has been because she has, has been a warrior. Um, it's not normal for a doctor that you don't know to call you at 10 o'clock at night when they're booked three weeks out and plus another week to get the results to get you in literally 10 hours later, and by 9.30, we had the results. And that's just not normal, but guess what? Dr. Lewis did that. I don't think it's normal for a surgeon to selflessly send his patient to another surgeon when he can do the very surgery that he's sending, uh, sending me to do. I don't think it's normal, but Todd did that. I, don't, I surely don't think that it happens often that people that you know and people that you don't know send you to one of the best radiation facilities on the planet led by a friend of yours named Magic who also selflessly sends you away, pushes you, virtually said, I'm not going to do it unless you go talk to a surgeon first. 
I don't think that that's normal for that to happen, but guess what? That's exactly what magic did. And, and oh, by the way, had we had the health insurance that we have had for the last 25 years, the place that did the scan, the radiation facility in Atlanta and St. Vincent's in Birmingham and Dr. Tully in Birmingham and the pathologist in Birmingham and the anesthesiologist in Birmingham would not have been covered. It had been out of network. But with Samaritan Ministries Health Sharing, you can go wherever you want, whenever you want. So here's the question. How do I, you, us, see the pattern, God's pattern and plans? How do we see those in our life unfold? Particularly when there's pain or suffering or disappointment. And I think there's three steps. Number one, you have got to allow God to make your heart tender. If we're going to respond appropriately to hurts and disappointments, you've got to allow your heart to become tender and you'll be able to handle those things a little better. God uses our hurts and our disappointments and our suffering to shape us. There's no way around it. That is what's going to happen. And, and when you get to the end of your life, either your heart's going to be hard or your heart's going to be crushed under the weight of these disappointments or your heart is going to be tender and it's going to be tenderized by the very same things that makes God's heart tender. So number one, allow him to make your heart tender. Number two, make your mind strong through faith. Learn to trust in God's control and his providence. And that takes a little humility. Throw in your life in another's hands. Trust in his, that he is in control. Trust in his providence. Faith is a thing of the mind. Paul says the battle takes place in our mind. He says renew your mind, renew your mind. And if you don't believe that God is in control and has awesome, unbelievable plans, then you are going to struggle big time with hopelessness. You're going to struggle big time with a lack of purpose. But if you allow him to be in control, you will find, because you will see those different things, and you'll find purpose, and you'll see those plans. And number three, and if you don't hear one thing I say today, I want you to hear this. You have got to see the world through the lens of Jesus' sacrifice. Every single event in your life has got to be viewed through the lenses of his sacrifice. Fix your tender heart and your faithful mind on the cross. And if you fix your tender heart and your faithful mind on the cross and through it see the world according to to God's pattern and plans. You have got to learn, we've got to figure out a way to see the world of pain through the eyes of the one who best understands it. And he best understands it not merely as pain, but as brokenness and separation. In fact, that exile to Babylon pointed straight toward Jesus' homelessness and his suffering on a cross outside of that gate. And what happened on that cross was that he bridged the gap, crazy major exile, he bridged the gap between him and us by that death on that cross and he demonstrated via love on that cross that he is the only one that can bridge that gap between him and us. That's how God enables us to see the world through the cross. And here's the deal. If you don't, if you can't, if you refuse to, I don't even know if you don't. Let's say if you don't, see it that way you will never see it God's way. And the threads of the masterpiece that he's weaving in your life 
will always pull away from his design. If you can't see it that way, the threads of the masterpiece that he's weaving in your life will pull away from his design. And so once you take those three steps, allow God to make your heart tender, make your mind strong through faith, and then view every single event of your life through the lens of what happened on that cross, then you'll begin to see the pattern and the plans and and, and the events of your life that way. So 2,700 years ago, when the Lord said through the letter, the text of the letter from the prophet Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon, all that Hebrew that was up on the screen, when he said that, here's what Susan and I heard every day for the last five months. Guys, I know it is brutal. I do. But I also know that I'm right here in the fire with you. I know the plans that I have for you. I know that the plans are for, trust me, I'm weaving a story. Trust me. They're not plans to allow you to get hammered. They're not plans to allow you to be devoured. They're plans for peace and contentment and hope and a future. Trust me, I'm weaving a story. My greatest desire right now is to give you the gift of hope and a future. So y'all pray with me. Lord, my prayer is that we can begin to see your hand in our lives. Even in the heat of the battle, Father, that, uh, that if we can do that and we can see your workmanship within us and through us, if we can see that, we'll see that it's tailor-made just for us. Your design, Lord, for our life, it, it, it weaves together every thread of our existence and it weaves them together into just this perfect, magnificent work of art. And my prayer is that we'll, that we'll see that and we'll, we'll recognize that. Every single thread matters, Lord, and, it, and you have a specific purpose for that. And so, Lord, I pray as we walk through the coming days and the coming weeks that we'll see those threads coming together and we'll see that you indeed are the grand weaver of our lives. Lord, and, and you don't do it with no purpose. You do it to give us hope. You do it to give us a future. And, and Lord, you offer this hope to us for free, and it wasn't free to you, but it's free to us. You paid a crazy, incredible price for it, Lord, but you offer it free to us. And so I'm talking to y'all now. If you want to replace hope with hopelessness today, you can. You just got to say yes. If you want to replace discontentment with peace today, you can. All you got to do is say yes. If, if, if you want to, if you just want to have hope, if you've never made Jesus the leader and forgiver of your life, if you've never done that, my prayer is that you will say yes today. If you want a fourth guy in the fire with you, no matter the circumstances, all you got to do is say yes to that offer. And so my prayer, my, I'm begging you if you've never done that, is that you would do that today. Replace hopelessness with hope. And so if you have done that, if you have said yes to that, here's, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to take the, the connection card on the seat back in front of you, and I just want you to write four words on that. Today I have hope. Put your name on it because we'd love to pray for you, but if you don't want to put your name on it, God knows exactly who you are, but write on that connection card, today I have hope. So I want to set this song up a little bit that our band is fixing to play, and I want you all to just, for the time being at least, just sit and listen 
to the words and really, really listen to the lyrics of this song, when you feel led, and you will feel led to stand up and praise the Lord, praise God, give Him thanks, He'll give you peace. Um, but just really listen, really listen to the words of this song, and, and, then, and then stand up when you feel right about it.